Well, thank you very much. I hope you can hear me. Is the microphone on? Are you uh, picking up back here? Okay, we have it. It's indicating that it's on. I wonder how we get the... Okay, I'm... okay, a little bit more. All right, I'm not used to having it right up here, but if you'll bear with me, can you hear it a little bit better? Okay, well, I'm honored to come back. I think I've come back now for four years to Grand Forum, and I'm always appreciative of the invitation to address you. I've always found you a lively group. I've always found that you've, you've done your reading. If you were in my class on the American presidency or American history, I'm sure you'd all get A's because you read a lot more than the students who are supposed to be reading in my class. And I would also say that um, it's a pleasure because I, I talked to Ralph this morning, Ralph Howenstein, and um, I said, how are you doing, Ralph? He's coming back into town. And he said, well, I'm doing okay. He says, uh, I'm on the right side of the grass, still. <laughs> and he says, I'm just one month and 13 years away from turning 110. <laughs> I said, Ralph, what's your secret? How do you keep going on like this? And he said, well, I'll tell you the secret. The way that I have aged well is that I've avoided stress, I've avoided setbacks, I've avoided disappointments because I haven't taken up golf. <laughs> He's a smart man. Well, this is the 200th anniversary of Lincoln's birth today, and I'm very pleased to be able to talk with you a little bit about Abraham Lincoln. I'd like to talk about his leadership, what Abraham Lincoln had that made him a remarkable American leader and a, a mythic, a heroic figure. He's a controversial figure, to be sure, just like FDR and other presidents who have uh, had great challenges in their time. A lot of literature has been produced that actually denigrates Lincoln, that criticizes him. But let's get a little bit behind who Lincoln was. Booker T. Washington made the comment once that you measure a human being's greatness uh, not just by the position they attain at the end of their lives or by the end of their lives, uh, because you have to look at the starting point. What obstacles did they overcome to get to the place where they are. That's how you measure a, a person's life. Now, a lot of people will say that Abraham Lincoln, of course, was one of the top presidents. In all of the surveys, he comes out in the top three with George Washington and Franklin Roosevelt. Now, this is, you, you know, you've heard me talk about George Washington. I love the man. I have a lot of respect for Washington. Washington starts out in life, though, you know, in the... Virginia Gentry, and he rises from, say, here to get to the presidency and then sustains a brilliant presidency to establish our country. No question. Give him all the credit. And I would certainly not denigrate other presidents. For example, if you look at George H.W. Bush, Bush 41, his father was a senator, and he was able to rise in the political class and the, the New England aristocracy from, say, here to get to the presidency. And so it is with John Quincy Adams, whose dad had been president, and with Benjamin Harrison, whose grandfather had been president. We respect, we admire these individuals who are able to rise to get to that point in life. But now take an individual who comes from a dirt poor, poorer than poor background, somebody who is on the frontier in Kentucky and then Indiana and then Illinois who has no benefits of political connection, no wealth behind his name, not a great name, whose mother was probably claimed that she was an illegitimate daughter 
uh, of uh, some Virginia aristocrat. Take that combination and look at the rise then from down there all the way to the presidency by the time he's in his early 50s. Now go back to the Booker T. Washington quotation. Measure the obstacles a human being has overcome to get to the heights. Now you're talking about true greatness. True greatness. That's not to take anything away from Washington, Adams, Harrison, Bush. But it's just to say that in perspective, if we take a step back and really look at where Abraham Lincoln came from, it is a miracle that he became president of the United States of America. What's the first thing you would notice about Abraham Lincoln if he were to walk into a room like this? I think the first thing you would notice is that he's tall. But what would your first impression be after you notice that he's tall? He was ugly. We didn't want to say it. He was, by his own admission, one of the ugliest human beings he knew. Uh, people who had accused him of being two-faced, he said, well, why would I be two if I were two-faced, why would I wear the face that I've got? <laughs> he knew how to make fun of his ugliness. But he was tall, he was ugly. The first thing you would notice about him is that he would have a presence. Now, it's not like the presence of a George Washington. Let's be clear about that. Let's, let's put Lincoln in a little bit of perspective here. Washington is one of the few human beings, apparently, who walked this earth who commanded unanimous assent that he should lead a group of people. When Washington walked into a room, he was often the one that people would say, unanimously, there's our leader. And we know we have the evidence of this again and again because Washington was chosen to lead the Continental Army. He was chosen to be the president chosen unanimously to be the president of the Constitutional Convention of 1787. He was chosen to be the person to lead uh, our country, the first um, electoral college debate, chosen unanimously by all the electors in 1789 and then for re-election in 1793. Chosen unanimously to lead us. That's Washington. He comes into a room and there's no doubt. And I always ask the question of people. I always ask audiences, do you think there's anybody in this room who could just walk in and every one of us would look at you and say, you're the leader of us all? Now, that's not a put down of anybody in this room, but it's just the fact that we, we have to earn trust over a long, hard slog. Oh, here we go, Judy, it's Judy. All right. I nominate Judy. Yeah, absolutely. Very good. There are very few human beings that strike an individual this way. Abraham Lincoln did not strike you as the natural leader when he walked into the room. He would be satisfied, as he said, when he was at the convention in Chicago in 1860, the Republican convention that nominated him, he would be satisfied to be the first, the, the, the first people's, uh, the, the, the first second choice if the team of rivals canceled each other out, if he could be then the next choice. So think about Lincoln's presence in that sense. He's not going to knock you off your feet when he comes into a room. But 
What did he have that was special? Very soon after he would walk into this room, what would he be able to convey that would make you cotton to him, as he would put it? He was eloquent. And you know what he did? He had two gifts that he used brilliantly to make sure he connected. And connection is so important. As I often tell the students, leadership is about relationship. Leadership is relationship. You have to connect with people so that people want to follow you. And the two ways that Lincoln connected with people were through humor, the wisecrack, the joke. He could get people to laugh. He used that self-denigrating humor that I just used. For example, he could get people to laugh at him at his expense. And that's always a winsome quality, is it not? People like to be around people who can laugh at themselves because it makes you comfortable around them. And the second quality he had was as a storyteller, a masterful storyteller. And he knew what Paul Harvey's genius was to know. Paul Harvey has this, this entire show. It's not called The Rest of the Statistics. <laughs> it's called The Rest of the Story. It's because Paul Harvey knows that we are meaning-making creatures. We are wired. We are wired to hear stories and to connect with each other in that way. Lincoln had an instinct for this. He had a genius for this. He knew the stories that he could tell that would make him connect with the people around him. I've often thought, in fact, Austin and I were talking about this on the walk over this morning, and as I pre prepared for these, these remarks, I've often wondered if we were to meet somebody that would, re if we had met Lincoln, who would he remind us of today? And for the life of me, I, I, I think he was unique. Maybe some part Ronald Reagan, you know, the storyteller, uh, the guy who had the, the, the quip, but he was a down-to-earth guy who had that southern twang. Yes, a southern twang. Remember, he comes from a family that had immigrated from Virginia across to Kentucky. And southern Indiana is also very southern in its sensibilities. He had that southern twang, kind of a high voice, not an aristocratic bearing at all. So part Reagan, part, I don't know. I mean, I... Roy Rogers. Uh, Will Rogers. Yeah, Roy Rogers, uh, too, maybe. Out there on the frontier, you never know. Will Rogers is a good guess. Will Rogers is a very good guess. That you, maybe you solved my dilemma. Who said that? Ah, two of you. <laughs> okay, very good. I like that. Yeah, maybe a Will Rogers, Ronald Reagan cross. So, Lincoln has this ability to connect with people. Where did it come from? Well, if you know that you're ugly, and if you know that you are, have these long limbs that make you look awkward, you've got to do something else in your life to make yourself stand out from the crowd. What you have to do is develop your wit. Isn't this, don't we see this happen in kids all the time when they're growing up? I mean, some kids are just naturally really smart in the classroom and maybe they don't develop other sides of their personality or some kids are naturally great athletes and they rise to be the jocks and they don't develop other sides of their personality, whatever it is. Sometimes we see that people who are perceived to have initially some disadvantages develop their personality in a way to make them stand out and more attractive to people. And that's what I think Lincoln did. We know, for example, that when he would go to the Little Baptist Church on Sundays, his parents would take him, that he would come back 
And the first thing he would do when he got back with the other kids is he would entertain them. He would weave those long legs into the fence rails and he would tell the sermon all over again, but this time he would do it so it would be a lot funnier, a lot wittier, and the kids loved it. Lincoln was always able to gather the other kids around him. That was one of his qualities, and he would use that quality for the rest of his life. That storytelling quality, that humor that made him so attractive to people. So the first thing we would notice as Lincoln started to engage with us, if he were to walk into this room, is his ability to put us at ease, to tell the stories that make him connect with us, and to, to keep us laughing at him and at ourselves. And all those are wonderful ways, of course, to draw those connections with people. He would use these skills, of course, all the way up through the end of his career. These skills were certainly developed when he was a circuit writer. Remember, he comes, becomes a lawyer, self-taught, and he's a circuit writer. That means that he spends three months in the spring and three months in the fall writing around the largest district in Illinois. And when he's out there uh, either taking a buggy or a horse or later a train, he's out there in his career going through this large district for three months on, on the road at a time. He was a star. He was like a rock star in rural Illinois. People loved it when he came to the county seat and he would argue in the courtroom because they could count on being entertained. People would come in to the court just to watch him. It's like turn on Nancy Grace at night or something. <laughs> What's Abe going to say today in the courtroom? He, again, used that storytelling ability. And truth be told, lawyers who've gone back and looked at the hundreds and hundreds of cases that Lincoln argued, and let's, let's be clear about this. Lincoln was a trial lawyer. It's one of the ironies he's the founder of the Republican Party because trial lawyers, of course, support who? The Democratic Party today. But Lincoln was a trial lawyer, and he was often a big corporate lawyer for the biggest corporation of the day, the railroads. So that's, that's Lincoln. But when you look at how he actually handled his cases, lawyers have examined the merits, and a lot of these cases that would have been a draw, Lincoln wins. Why does he win? Not because he has the stronger legal case to make, but because he has the humor and the personality, the stories, to win juries to his side. And he knows he has that talent. And he does pull it. He gets a lot of people out of a heap of trouble from his ability to argue cases in a courtroom with such skill because of that storytelling and not necessarily on the legal merits. Though legal merits, of course, he was a great student of the law, self-taught. Legal merits he would certainly pluck out when he had to. So Lincoln impresses us on the circuit. Also, what happens when he's, he's finished in the day, arguing his case in court, what happens at the end of the day? Everybody goes to a tavern to bed down for the night, and they tighten the ropes, you know, sleep tight. They tighten their ropes for the bed, and two, three, four guys get in a bed. Yes, that's the way it was on the frontier. It doesn't mean a thing. Don't go there. <laughs> this is... This is common practice on the frontier in America. Um, you and I would be in the same bed if we were in the, in, in, uh, the court that day. We would. Whoa. We would. <laughs> common practice. And, if the, and during those hours in the taverns, the entertainment was to trade stories. 
And again, Lincoln was the rock star out on this large circuit. People enjoyed it if he were going to be coming to their tavern that night because they knew a lot of people would be entertained by his storytelling and his jokes. If people were irritated by anything about Lincoln at this point, it was that when it was time to tighten those ropes and everybody, you know, would go to bed, Lincoln would continue to burn the uh, candle or the lamp. And he would continue to read into the night because what he was doing was thinking about his cases the next day or a speech he would have to make, his opposition to Douglas or whatever it was. That's what Lincoln would be focused on. So he would not be turning out the light as early as other people would want him to. So those are the things that, those are the skills that Lincoln honed as a storyteller, as a raconteur, as uh, the funny guy that stood him in good stead through his entire career and enabled him to connect with people. He knew that leadership is about relationship and he knew how to forge that relationship through his stories and his humor. What's the second thing we would notice about Lincoln? He comes into a room. I think after we would start to talk to him, after we would get behind some of the funny stories and all, we would see that this is a man with immense passion for what he is doing. Once he started to get serious and talk to us about what he was trying to do with his life, you would see he was a passionate man. How did this passion express itself? In a number of ways. For example, when he was a young man, it was clear that he wanted to leave the farm. He did not like farming. He did not want that dirt poor existence on the frontier. He respected the people whose families would come and work hard and be able to build up their, their assets and improve their lives. He respected that process, but it wasn't for him. So he expresses his ambition by uh, learning the law, teaching himself the law. Um, he certainly didn't have the opportunity to get a, a formal uh, a formal education. I always draw the distinction between education and schooling. Lincoln would have been the most educated man in this room, but he would have been the least schooled. Do you know how long he went to his formal schooling? One year. One year. He got just enough reading, writing, and ciphering to the rule of three in that one year to lay a foundation for him to learn many other things. So it's not his formal education. Many people's passion and ambition is expressed. They go to the best schools and all that. This wasn't going to be Lincoln. He did not have the opportunity on the Kentucky and Indiana frontier to do so. Again, he has to teach himself. If he wants to rise, he's got to become a lawyer. So what does he do? He starts hanging around as, as he takes flatboats down the Ohio and he travels and moves goods around. He goes to courtrooms. He talks to judges and lawyers and he says to himself, I could do what they're doing and I could do it just as well, maybe even better. Lincoln did have self-confidence. He had a vision of who he could be. So he teaches himself the law. He rises uh, to become really one of the, the best lawyers in Illinois. There's that stuff going around on the internet that says, look at all the failures of Lincoln. You know, he uh, got in debt when he was running a, a store and uh, he was turned out of the U.S. Congress and you see all the failures. Don't be fooled. I mean, over a 30-year career, people are going to have their setbacks. 
Lincoln was an enormously successful person and he wanted to leave his mark in some significant way because he did not want to just die anonymously on the frontier. But he had something different in that passion that rose beyond and above ambition. He really wanted to make a difference in this country because he identified a problem that he knew this country could not live with. And of course you know what it is. The idea of the expansion of slavery. Not so much that slavery caused the Civil War, it's the idea of the expansion of slavery that becomes the sticking point for so many. And Lincoln throws himself in that debate because he sees that this country has not resolved some fundamental principles. You had the old Missouri Compromise of 1820, that basically set a geographic argument out. It says above 3630, there's not going to be any slavery in the West. And then all of a sudden in the Compromise of 1850, you have Senator Douglas and uh, Senator Clay coming to this compromise by saying, no, in the Western territories, it'll be popular sovereignty. The people will get to choose. So you have a geographic principle on the one hand and you have a demographic, democratic principle on the other hand. They can't coexist in the same country. You've got to solve the issue of how slavery is going to expand logically, coherently, and in a principled manner. And even though Lincoln had served in Congress and had gone back to his law practice in the early 1850s and was making scads of money, they were able to expand their house in Springfield. He was becoming very successful in his practice in his 40s. He knew that this country was in trouble down the road. What's he been reading at night in those taverns, out on the circuit? He's, he's taken the Indiana, or then later, the Illinois Code of Laws. And what are the first documents in the Code of Laws? Magna Carta, the Declaration of Independence, and the Constitution. Lincoln is reading those things at night. And he's working in this he his head again and again. All men are created equal. How are we getting ourselves into the mess where slavery, which is supposed to die out over the long haul, will continue to expand and expand and expand? We'll never see the end of it. That's what Lincoln's challenge is, and he's fired up to get back in. And now it's not anymore just to be the great lawyer that, well, his case is equal to mine, but I can win the case because I'm the better storyteller and I'm funnier. That's ambition. Lincoln had more than ambition. He discovers more than that in his life. He really wants to tackle this problem and serve the country. Leadership is about relationship, but now we see that Lincoln is also talking about leadership in terms of service. Leadership and service to your community in terms of service to your country. That's the second thing you would notice about Abraham Lincoln. Ambitious man, yeah, but a lot more than just raw ambition. What's the third thing you would notice about Abraham Lincoln once you started talking to him? Tall, ugly, but witty and great storyteller, yes. You'd sense that you'd want to be in a relationship with this guy. You'd want to follow. You'd, you'd, you'd find him a very compelling figure. And you would also certainly see that he was ambitious, that he had the energy to take people where they wanted to go. We would certainly see that as well that he had a commitment to this country that was unusual. But the third thing you would see about Lincoln is that he had vision. He had imagination. Great leaders have the ability to see where they want the organization they're leading to go. Lincoln 
had a vision for this country that would be free of slavery. We've already talked a little bit about that down the road. He observed, for example, that the Constitution, the Constitution itself never mentions the word slavery. It uses the euphemism, you know, three-fifths of persons. But first of all, it's interesting, is it not, that the Constitution does concede with all those Southerners who were in the room in 1787, the Constitution does concede that blacks are persons. They're not just chattel. And he uses that to conclude that the founders anticipated that there would be a day in our country when slavery would no longer exist. And he also looked at the clause. Remember from this nighttime reading in these taverns, going back to the Illinois Code of Laws, the first two documents in there. He'd go back to the Declaration of Independence and he'd say, okay, all men are created equal. I see where the founder's vision is. It's my vision too. We're going to get there. Somehow we're going to get there. That's essential to Lincoln's vision, but something else about his vision is very important too and it's rarely taught. And it's one of the things that uh, when you're teaching Lincoln, it's important to point out to students. Lincoln not only had a vision of the North and the South coming back together, Remember, Lincoln, Lincoln at the beginning of the Civil War, or after, in between the period of November when he's elected and his inauguration on March 4th, 1861, he is begging the South, don't secede. Seven states withdraw at that point. Four more states are about to. He says, don't, we'll keep the Union together. Let's compromise. Let's work together. Your peculiar institution, I will not threaten. Remember in the first inaugural address, he assures the South, he assures the South that he will not take away their property rights over these persons. He's confident that slavery will eventually die of its own. But he's going to fight against the South rebelling against the North or the extension, any attempt to extend that slavery into the West. That's where he draws the line. Two lines, actually. Now, Lincoln wants union above all, and we think in terms of union of North and South. But Lincoln had such a big view of this country that he's also thinking of the union between East and West. He is seeing a continental republic. He's extending Madison's argument about those little republics on the East Coast. He is seeing a continental republic that is knit together by a number of things. For example, he knows that there's been a communication revolution. This is why the Lincoln-Douglas debates are the first debates that are recorded by stenographers who are taking their notes to the telegraph office. And this is why Lincoln's going to become famous because newspapers around the country now can get the story of the Lincoln-Douglas debates shortly after the debate takes place. A revolution in communication in Lincoln's thinking. We can use that through this country. You also know about the Continental Railroad that's going to be so important. Lincoln supports the idea. It's in the Republican platform of a Continental Railroad that will knit the East Coast with the West Coast and the North with the South. Transportation revolution. But then there are other things that our republic would need for it to work. It would need to attract people to fill in these lands in the West. And this is why Lincoln supported the Homestead Act. The Homestead Act, of course, would enable settlers to go through all of the great American desert. That's what Kansas and Nebraska used to be called, you know, and lands beyond. They would be able to go to these wide open spaces and they would, in a Jeffersonian manner, 
you know, become the yeoman Republican farmers that Jefferson envisioned. But it would be more than that because Lincoln also supported the Morrill Act that would establish land-grant universities in all of the states. There were 33 states when Lincoln became president, but he knew there would be many more as the West filled up. And there would have to be a provision to get those educational institutions out there so that citizen farmers would not just be stuck on the farm as subsistence dirt merchants, but would able, be able to go out into the marketplace. Lincoln pushed the idea of a global economy. People don't realize his vision, but he knew that if you have the communication revolution, the transportation revolution, if you have the education, if you have the lands, if you have all of that working in sync, look at what you're doing to your farmers. Your farmers can grow produce now beyond Jefferson's wildest dreams because they're getting the latest in arts and sciences from those land-grant universities. They grow more crops, they feed more people, and then they take their crops, not just to their local market, but to the railroad depot. And those crops now move, and goods come in from Europe or from Asia to the farmers. And the United States becomes an economic superpower that's knit together with the world. Lincoln's vision, north and south, absolutely. Union above all. East and west, yes, also. You've got to keep the east-west connection. In, in Lincoln's thinking. Because he is the one who has the vision, the imagination to see where this country can go. And you know where I think the metaphor for this, sort of the, the first experience for this can come from? I love to think about Lincoln's first trip down the Mississippi River, where he takes some goods. He's like a 21-year-old, 22-year-old. He takes goods all the way down to New Orleans. Fascinating trip. Mark Twain would have had a heyday with the, the trip. It's, it's, it's Lincoln's Huck Finn adventure. You know, he's attacked on the, the barge that he built with his own hands. I mean, it's a fascinating story. But Lincoln transporting stuff between north and south, I think that's a metaphor how he would transport us beyond the 1860s into a global superpower because of his vision. And subsequent presidents built on that vision. So he had this huge view of the United States. So what, what have we talked about so far? Lincoln is somebody with an extremely attractive personality, he understood the leadership's relationship. Second, we've talked about his passion that would have expressed itself early in his life in terms of ambition, but later truly in serving the country for a greater cause. And we've talked about his vision. What's the fourth thing that you would notice about Lincoln once you really started working with him? Character, honesty and trust, you nailed it. Abraham Lincoln became Honest Abe for a reason. He was honest to a fault. In fact, when his business partner, with whom he had opened a store, failed and left him with the debts, Lincoln took every pain to pay back the debt. He did not renege. He did not default. He paid back every penny. It took years. He was just a poor person at that point. He was not yet a lawyer. He did not have a practice, but he did the honorable thing, and he paid off that business debt. Lincoln had... I think a lot of experiences in his life that made him become the strong character that he was. Let's think about them. You know, anytime we see, let's go back to the Booker T. Washington quotation about somebody who rises from real low down. Well, Lincoln, Lincoln rose over material privation to be sure. A lot of just raw poverty. There were reports that Lincoln's family was even poorer than the typical 
Kentucky, and Indiana family. Now, there were times that his father, Thomas Lincoln, owned two horses, had clear title to two tracts of land, but because of problems in settling the West in those days, his father lost those tracts of land. They had to keep moving. They had a lot of bad luck. You know, sometimes they'd get to just a red clay area and they would have to keep moving on. Lincoln knew just grinding poverty with the dirt floors and the uh, seeds that he had just planted with his dad being washed out in floods. They knew this. They had a tenuous existence. The material privation was bad, but I would argue that Lincoln's character was forged because he had to overcome something worse than material privation, as bad as it was. He had to overcome emotional poverty. Lincoln had to overcome the emotional poverty that was expressed in his own character and also in the people around him. Let me explain. Lincoln, because he was on the frontier, knew what it was like to lose people. And the first person who meant anything to him that he lost, um, his mother gave birth to a, a little baby boy after um, he was born. He was probably too young to remember the death of his little brother, just very shortly after the birth. But then his mom got the milk sickness when Lincoln was only nine years old. Now think about this, ladies and gentlemen. Lincoln is in a cabin that's about 20 by 16 or 18. 20 by 16 feet. Several people in the room, you cannot get away from death. We sanitize death in our culture. We have hospice. We have all kinds of, you know, we, we send people off to die elsewhere often. In the frontier, you didn't do that. You stood by your own. Nancy, his mother, had an agonizing death. Doctors have gone back and looked at the symptoms of milk sickness that contracted when you, you drink the milk from a cow that's eaten a noxious weed. The death takes about a week. The body swells. There are hallucinations. And all kinds of ugliness involved in this process. And you take a nine-year-old child who's trying to communicate his last thoughts with his mom. His mom's trying to communicate her last thoughts to him. Lincoln had a terrible experience watching his mother die a slow, agonizing death. Then imagine this little nine-year-old kid having, he's the only boy who survived in the family, imagine this little kid now having to help build her coffin with, with dad. So he's with the planer and whittling the mortise and tendon joints, that kind of thing. Lincoln had to build his own mom's coffin. Then his, his sister, his one sister, whom he was very close to, Sarah, got married, and within two years of her marriage, she dies in childbirth. I think Lincoln is 17 at this point. I think his sister is 19, or 19 and 21. But the point is, he loses another close family member. Now you're thinking, okay, well, he has his dad, at least. Oh, they were estranged. Lincoln... Abraham and Thomas were very, very estranged from each other. Thomas thought Lincoln was lazy, wanted to read books. If you have a boy, you've lost your one boy, you're going to marry off your daughter, you need kids to help you out in the fields. And Lincoln, while he would do the farm work, as soon as he had the opportunity to get away from the farm work, he would go read. Anytime he could get a book, 
he would be found under a shade tree or at night, you know, by the fireplace and the light. A famous painting that you see of Lincoln in his boyhood. Very accurate. He was an oddball out on the frontier, wanting all these books, wanting to fill his mind with Aesop's fables, stories from the Bible, Shakespeare's plays, Burns' poetry, Byron's poetry. All of these images from literature filled his mind and transported him out. And this fed into that ambition, that desire to be something greater that we talked about earlier. And his father would get impatient with him. And when Abraham wouldn't always do his chores, his father would beat him. Then, Abraham Lincoln makes a promise to himself. He's going to get off that dirt farm. He's going to do something with his life. He's going to be a merchant. He's going to be a lawyer. He's going to do anything to get off that farm. He gets off the farm and he goes to New Salem and he falls in love with a girl named Ann Rutledge. And by all accounts, this is going to be the love of his life. And we know that there's something going on between them because, because when Ann comes down with a sickness and she dies, Lincoln goes into his first documented clinical depression. There are two times when he totally collapses mentally, emotionally. And the first time Lincoln totally collapses is when Ann dies. He describes that he is so upset at her death, he throws himself on her grave after she dies. He cannot stand the thought of snow and rain coming down on that gravesite. He's sick at heart. He is so sick at heart that he has to go to his friend's Joshua Speed's house and I mean he is flat out depressed, lying down, clinically depressed, in a total collapse. This would happen another time in his life. He proposes to marry Todd and then he has second thoughts. He withdraws the proposal Again, he goes into a, his second, what can only be described as a clinical depression. And I mean, folks, he is flat out on his back again. Isn't that right, Mr. Lincoln? Sweet. What, what great time. We also have Mr. Douglas with us. Senator Douglas, welcome. What did I say at the beginning of this talk? What would we think if Abraham Lincoln walked into the room? <laughs> and we've had it happen. Six four. That's right, six four, 180 pounds. But a good wrestler. And a good wrestler. So let's sum up here, because I, I think now that uh, this would be a good time for me to sum up. Again, what are the four points I've made about Lincoln's leadership? You would notice that relationship was important to him because he was able to connect with people through his stories, his humor. He hones it in the courtroom. He knows how to get people to get along with his point of view. Come after him. He becomes a very attractive person, even though he considered himself and many others considered him lucky. That's the first thing you notice about Lincoln. He can connect with you and laugh at himself and get others laughing at him and that kind of thing. The second thing, we've seen his, his passion expressed early on and ambition 
but also in the desire to serve a higher cause. And we see that he gave himself to his country in that capacity. That third capacity we saw of him as a great leader is we saw his imagination. He had the vision to be able to see that this country was not just about north and south, although that absorbed 90% of his energies, but it was about east and west. And using that legacy that Henry Clay had left in the American system to try to knit this country together so it would expand west and be a great nation across the continent. And then we've seen that Lincoln not only came, overcame material privation, but overcame emotional poverty to get where he was. Now, there are many other aspects of Lincoln's life that we could plumb in this brief time we have together. We could certainly talk about outstanding communication skills. People say that the greatest communicators in the presidency were Woodrow Wilson, Ronald Reagan, FDR, Abraham Lincoln. And we know that Lincoln's great literary endeavors have become part of our canon as Americans. If you look at the mystic chords of memory from you know, the first inaugural address, with malice toward none from the second inaugural address, government of by and for the people in the Gettysburg address, school kids learn these resonant lines, take them to heart, and they become part of the vocabulary of other politicians who want to make their mark in American history. Lincoln's literary legacy is permanent not only for our country and the American canon, but in world literature. Tolstoy, for example, was quite taken with Lincoln's literary prowess. Other aspects, uh, Lincoln knew how to prioritize. Now, he's kind of funny in this. Um, leaders always know how to prioritize, and Lincoln could stay focused, but he was a, he was a technology geek. Uh, somebody with a new mousetrap or a weapon would come into the White House, the executive mansion, as it was called in those days, and he would be totally absorbed by new technology. He, he was a high-tech geek for his day. Uh, he also claims that he had no system as a lawyer. That's why he had to have Billy Herndon help him out. And he said he hired Billy Herndon because Billy Herndon was a guy with system, but a poor lawyer. But it turned out Billy Herndon didn't have a system either, and turned out <laughs> not to be a great lawyer. He says, Billy Herndon disappointed me twice. <laughs> So uh, we, we know that, that Lincoln could prioritize when he had to. There are many other qualities of leadership that you would see. But I think with that, I have prattled on enough now that we have um, Mr. Lincoln himself in our midst who's running for a very tough Senate race, and we have Senator Douglas. The year's 1858, and tonight you're going to be able to hear a debate between these two gentlemen. Uh, the famous Lincoln-Douglas debates have been carried by newspapers around the country, as I mentioned earlier, the stenographers and the telegraph are carrying the debate. And your friends down in New Orleans or Charleston or uh, parts east, like New York, they will be able to read about what happens tonight shortly after it takes place. We're very honored to have these two men with us. Thank you very much. Come on up, guys. Let's have you guys come on up.